During the scripture reading, we looked at 1 Peter 2, 1 and verse 4, and we had mentioned that uh, the verse concerned a continual coming to Christ. The first message, if you remember, dealt with the need to preach the gospel and evangelism so that people can come to Christ. We had talked about how that a lot of times we'll preach the gospel, the particulars and the implications of the gospel, and then because a lot of the false methods in the world today in religion, people don't know what it means to come to Christ because if you have the extreme salvation in the church, they think they come to Christ by sacraments. If you have the other view of people walking down an aisle, and that's been a popular view for the past 160, 70 years, the invitation altar call sinner's prayer system, people are steeped in that deceit. When I tell people uh, we don't have an altar call, we don't have that type of an invitation system, and then they say, well, how do, pe how do people get saved? Because they assume that's the way people get saved. Even so-called gospel tracts, which usually don't have the gospel in them, at the very end, they have a miniature view of a public invitation system. It's a prayer that you read and repeat to supposedly accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. So we needed to, in the introduction, explain that there is a difference between just hearing the gospel and the activity of coming to Christ. And we talked about what coming to Christ is, and it is a work, and operation in the heart by God to give faith so that the sinner can come to Christ by faith. That's the only way you can come to Christ is by faith. There is no other way to come to Christ. And in that message we talked about, as we preach the gospel, the things to say and the things not to say. We talked about things that are like left over in our past that we have to get rid of when we deal with the message because we don't want to add humanism in the message. We don't want to get ourselves in the message. We want to preach Christ and him crucified and get out of the way. And the Holy Spirit will honor that message, that message of truth, and will, if they are the elect and if it's the appointed time, through the power of that word, through the power of the Spirit, they will give that sinner life and they will approach Christ by faith. Second message started dealing with the three simple ideas of what the gospel message should contain. First message being who God is and what he requires. We talked about in that message that we looked at God's attributes and just said he's, he's perfect and he requires absolute perfection. The next message dealt with mankind, human beings, the fact that they come into this world and cannot meet those requirements that God demands. They can't even begin to. They don't come close. We talked about their utter moral and spiritual bankruptcy. They have nothing to pay their debt against the law that they're guilty of. They're under the curse of God. And they're guilty. And they can't pull themselves up by, them, by their bootstraps and do something to recommend themselves to God. They can't do it. We talked about how they can't keep God's Ten Commandments, the law. Talked about how they can't even keep any lower law or anything that even boils down to 
efforts of the will or sincerity because all of that is tainted with man's sin. Man at his best is altogether vanity, God says in his word, is altogether a waste. Can't meet the standard. And then thirdly, we dealt with the fact that Christ is the only one that can meet the required conditions that God has set forth for salvation. He's the only one that can meet the requirements, the conditions, and the demands of salvation. He is the only remedy for sin. And then toward the end of that message, that was last week, we talked about the actual coming to Christ. We talked about how the people, they hear that message, they see there's a problem because God's so strict, they can't meet the requirements, and they can't do anything about it, so they have to turn only to one place. And it's not, it's not a physical turning, it is a turning in the mind by the power of God to embrace or to count on, to lean on, to trust in Christ alone for salvation. It's just you lay down all your efforts, you lay them all down, you lay down all your weapons, and you submit. You wave the white flag. You say, you know what, I'm not going to be religious anymore. I'm not going to try to compete with Christ because he's the only one who can do it. And you, you divest all of your things that you had in yourself and your efforts and your religion, and you invest fully in Christ. And you say, if, if he cannot save me all by himself, completely from beginning to end, I'm not going to be saved. So that is the kind of faith that God gives his people. That's coming to Christ. No adding to Christ, in other words. Simply clinging to him and his cross. So this week we're going to try to talk about how that we continually come to Christ by faith after salvation on a daily basis for, for peace, for assurance, for cleansing, for uh, communion, for strength, for joy, everything. We continually come to Christ for all of that, that he is richly provided by the things that he has done and because of who he is and his person and his work. Now, all the verses that I'm going to read, I have already printed out. You can turn to them if you want. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to talk about, first of all, how that salvation is a continual thing. It's a, it's a Trinitarian process. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit is involved in salvation. Each one plays a part in salvation, and it is continually happening. It happened, it started from before the foundation of the world, happens in time, after we're saved, God preserves us, continues to work in us, and then it goes past time in glorification and will never end. So here's a verse that kind of deals with uh, the, the tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. Verse 9 says, But we had the sentence of death in ourselves. So that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And notice this, who delivered us from so great a death, past tense, delivered us, and does deliver, present tense, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. So 
the topic today is a continual coming to Christ after salvation. He works in us to continue to have us do that so that we can look to him for salvation every day and not look to ourselves. It's not that God saves us and then he says, okay, now you're on your own. I've, I've injected you with something and now this is where the rubber meets the road. You're going to perform and I'm going to watch you. Now it's up to you. If you mess it up, you're done. It's, it's not like that. God works in his people. He's, he's secured their salvation by the death of Christ, by the election of the Father, and by the sanctification of the Spirit. All those things are not done by us at all. They're done by God, the Trinity. Now, Scripture says, this is probably the most quoted Old Testament Scripture in the New Testament, which means it's probably the most often quoted verse in the whole Bible, that the just shall live by faith. Those that are justified, and what is justification? Let's refresh our memories. Justification is God declaring a person perfectly righteous based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ transferred or imputed or charged to his account. The righteousness is charged to the account. God looks at this person and says, you are perfectly righteous, just as righteous as my son. You're justified. After that takes place, there's no more condemnation. It's an impossibility for that person to enter into condemnation, guilt, or hell. So the just, or those that are justified, live by faith. They live by faith. Again, it's not just that faith is exercised one time. They walk away from it. It says that they live by faith. And since God's people live by faith, this means that their faith continues to always have a proper object. Faith has to have an object. Now, you can look at false religion. Those people in false religion, they have a faith. It's not God-given faith. It's not the faith that's involved with real salvation. But they have a faith. They're, in other words, they're trusting in something. But in false religion, that faith is always in the wrong object. It's always somehow diverted or reverted back to the sinner. Back to a condition that the sinner performs to fulfill some type of reconciliation between him and God. But God-given faith, the faith that those that are justified will live by, the object of that faith daily looks to Christ alone, every day. And if it's not there, what's the scripture says? Whatever is not of faith is sin. Now, if we as believers are not exercised spiritually in the word of God, Let's say we neglect thinking about the gospel, studying his word, and we grow cold. And we get ourselves in a situation and we get tangled up in some sort of a sin or something. And then we feel guilt. And then we start thinking like we used to think when we were in false religion. We think, oh, I got to be good to make up for the bad. I better make God some promises. 
I better do this or that. And then they start, am I even saved? So doubt may creep in. Why? Because faith does not have its proper object of the Christ of the gospel. Faith is turned back in and saying, okay, I'm the one driving this car. I'm the one flying this plane. Christ is in the back seat, and I've got to perform. Wrong view of how you live by faith. Christ must always be the object of faith. Scripture also, I believe it is Romans 8, says that those that are the people of God walk in the Spirit. If they walk in the Spirit, what is the Spirit's task? Anybody remember what the Spirit's task is? It's to point people to Christ. It's to testify of Christ continually. So everything that we come to in the gospel, things that are in the gospel, in the context of the gospel, that we are involved in, in our life, as we live out this faith, everything points us back to Christ, continually points us back to Christ. Now before we get into the meat of the message, I want to give a little advertisement for lack of a better phrase or caveat or whatever, little note, especially for the people on Sermon Audio that don't know who we are, haven't been to this church, so that we are not accused of being uh, antinomian, which means against the law. Uh, I want to remind the objectors that Gospel of Grace Church consistently teaches that believers are to be, as the scripture says in Titus, zealous or full of zeal for good works. We believe that we are regenerated. We believe by the Spirit of God who dwells in us, we are sanctified by that Spirit. We believe that we are to walk by that Spirit, not by the flesh, as I've already said in an introduction. We believe that the believer has faith, and that faith has fruit, and that faith without works is dead, as it says in James. We believe that the believer never has an excuse for any sin, and anyone who thinks that we don't teach that, first of all, has never been here, and if they have been here, they've been asleep. So having said all that, it doesn't matter having said all that. People will still say and still accuse us of not doing enough to produce fruit because what do we have out there in religion? Even among Sovereign Grace Calvinistic reform circles, we have people who dilly-dally and make their business to be fruit inspectors. And they want to get in your business and get in your life and say, you are not doing enough. And they produce their own standard that they can't even keep themselves, just like the Pharisees. And these fruit inspectors primarily are of what we have talked about before in the Lordship Salvation Camp. And we'll be talking over the weeks and months and years about that group of people and warning you and to show you what to look out for so that you won't be fooled. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Speaking of some people that were drawn in and fooled for a little while by 
some of these type people. We studied through Galatians a couple years back, verse by verse. In chapter 3, there are a couple of verses here that uh, lend to our topic about the fact that we should continually come to Christ by faith. No matter whether we're doing good or doing bad, no matter what our circumstances, no matter if we are rich or poor, if we've uh, lost our house or won the lottery, it doesn't matter. Coming to Christ by faith daily, and we should have this same level plane of attitude and mindset of my salvation is always and only in Christ. I'm accepted in him. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, chapter 3, who bewitched you not to obey the truth, to whom before your eyes Jesus Christ has evidently been set forth and crucified among you? This only would I, would I learn from you. And notice this here. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And listen closer to this verse. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, do you now perfect yourself in the flesh? Referring to keeping the law, to, to be righteous. That's what the lie that had crept in this church by the false prophets that slipped in were saying. You have to, yeah, believe in Christ, but there's also these laws that you keep. And if you don't keep them, you're not righteous. That's what the lie was. Paul says, did I suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it is even in vain, he's talking about his efforts in preaching the gospel and teaching them. He wondered if he wasted his time with these people. Because they're not, they're not sticking to the, to seemingly to the message that he preached. Because they're veering off and they're being temporarily fooled by some of these people that had crept in and brought these lies in. Then he's supplying the spirit to you and working powerful works in you. Is it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now this section here is very clear that Paul is saying that if you believe the gospel, you are guided by the Spirit of God. And the things that are in you that are worth anything are not from you anyway, but they're from the Spirit of God working in you to produce these things. And if you didn't have God-given faith, this wouldn't even be taking place. So why would you think that you could lay your hands on the law that the Spirit of God, first of all, said, here's the law, you can't keep it. This is why I'm showing it to you, because you can't keep it. Why would you be so foolish to turn back around, lay your hands back on that plow, and plow that ground again? Say, no, I'm going to get, uh, I'm saved now. I can, I can keep the law, and I can be accepted to God because I'm doing so good with the law. Paul said it's foolish. Ver chapter 1, he said it's false gospel. So he warned him. Now look, at, look down in verse 22. Galatians 3.22, but the scripture shut up all under sin so that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now remember when we went through Galatians, we said this, there are no blessings to anybody that does not believe. In other words, that don't have faith, this faith we've been talking about. Somebody that doesn't believe the gospel, no blessings, no promises. Faith 
is the avenue or means which God gives to where you can enter into this whole arena to understand all this stuff and to access it and to receive it. It says here in verse 23, but before faith came, before a person exercises faith, they don't have any. They're lost, in other words. They don't believe. So before that, we were kept under law, having been shut up to faith, about to be revealed. So that the law has become a trainer. Some versions say tutor. Some versions say schoolmaster. But the law is just that. The Spirit takes the law and shows people Look, here are the implications of the law. You got to keep them all the time. And here is the more of a breakdown of the law. It's just not the action, but it is the thought, which makes people even more guilty. It goes down under the surface, layers deep, and busts people before they even commit the deed. It's of the heart. So the Spirit shows people that. The purpose of the law, we'll read here in a minute in Romans, is to show people they can't keep it. And the Spirit does the same thing. The Spirit just doesn't stop there. The Spirit says, look, you can't keep the law, and points them to Christ, leads them to Christ. That's his job. He testifies of Christ. So that the law has become a tutor of us until Christ, that we might be justified by or through faith. Verse 25. But faith coming, after God gives faith, what's it say next? This line right here is so ignored. After faith comes, we are no longer under a tutor or trainer or schoolmaster. No more. The law of God is not my guide for my life. The Spirit of God points me to Christ as my guide. That's his job. Now to say otherwise is blasphemous. To say that, no, it's not the Spirit, it's not Christ. I take the law again. The law that the Spirit says I can't keep. The law that pointed me to Christ. I got to take that law again and do something with it to impress God or be accepted to God. That's a false gospel. It's blasphemy. It's satanic. Now, let me go back to the note that we first started. Does this mean that the law is bad? Scripture says the law is good. The law is holy. The law doesn't have the problem. We got the problem. That's the point. I come to Christ because I can't keep the law. I don't come to Christ to keep the law. And the, the older I get in Christ, in my experience... The worse I see that I am trying to get that law kept. And I think Paul experienced that himself too. Paul, he, he made three major statements throughout the spread of his ministry. And the last one was, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He's not, not worthy. I'm not worthy of anything. I'm the chief of sinners. And that's what I continually see myself. As much effort as I put forth to avoid sin, obey God, I see that in my flesh, I'm no better off than I was before I was saved. That's a fact. My flesh did not improve. I don't shore up this flesh in performance. 
I cannot impress God in my flesh any more better today than I could before I was saved. I am just accepted now, just like I was the very first day I was saved, accepted in Christ. I'm never accepted outside Christ by my law-keeping. You know, uh, Paul said to these Galatians that were kind of dabbling in this garbage, he says, don't you hear what the law says? They, they didn't hear what the law says. The law says you have, it, it goes back to our for, first point about who God is and what he demands. The law says, and this is God's law, the perfect God that issued forth the perfect law, it says you got to keep me all the time, every day, and if you break me once, you've broken the whole law and you're condemned forever. You can't do that. You can't keep that. And if you can't keep the law like Christ, you're not keeping the law. Because Christ is the standard. Verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, the point about this law thing, and we're going to eventually get deeper into this, is the glory, the credit, the honor. The one performing, we stand out of the way and we point people, just like the Spirit did us, point people to Christ. Say, here's the law keeper. Here's the perfect law keeper. Here's the one also who paid the penalty for my broken law. That's why I have mercy now. And then people continually say, well, you're, you're saying you don't have to obey. Whoever's listening on Sermon Audio, just rewind it and listen again because that's not what I said. They continually say that. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. Two verses that we're familiar with. But sometimes we go back to verses that we're familiar with to rehearse them and review them for a different reason than we did before. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. Uh, in this context, Paul was re uh, going over, recapping his uh, history in his own false religion that he was in, uh, Judaism, which is what? It's keeping the law for righteousness. That's what Judaism was all about. And he said, you know, I, I was pretty good at it. Better than, he's writing these Philippians, better than any of you ever thought about being. I blew all you guys away. And I'm telling you, I'm not counting on it. So you'd be stupid to count on it because if, if mine, which is better than yours, didn't do anything, you might as well get rid of yours. And in verse 7 he says, But whatsoever things were gained to me, those religious things that he was counting as part of his seniority to uh, build up credit and acceptance to God, to impress God, he said all those things in my false religion, I counted them lost for Christ. But no, rather, I also count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them to be dung. That's crap. So that I may win Christ. And notice this. More particularly, to be found in him and redundantly not having my own righteousness. Where's that come from? which is of the law. 
That's where my own righteousness would come from. It would come from me laying my hands on the law and performing the law to say, is this good enough? Have I worked with the law good enough to merit your justification or your sanctification? The verse goes on and says, but on the contrary, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of God by faith. That's the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel that the Spirit of God takes and educates us and points us to Christ with. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. I mean, how many times and how many ways does it have to be said that we do not have any righteousness by doing anything? We have one righteousness. It's Christ's. He gave it to us. He put it to our account. When God looks at our account, is looking in the books whether we're going to pass or not, he says, yep, right here, perfect righteousness. And it's Christ's righteousness. Not mixed with ours. Not gained by anything we did or said or thought. Not by the law, not by lower law, not by sincerity, not by our will. Not even because God had pity on us. We were so crippled and, or so cute or something in us that caused God to do anything. It was something in Christ that caused God to do something for us. It's for Christ's sake. It's for his honor, for his glory, because of him. Look at uh, Romans chapter 3. Let's go there. Verse 19. There's about 10, 10 verses or so we're going to look at. We're going to maybe go faster through some of the verses than, than others. But Romans 3.19. But we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be under the judgment, under judgment before God. Because by the works of the law, none of all flesh will be justified in his sight. For or because through the law is the knowledge of sin. Here he gives a definition or a reason why the law was given. The law was given so that you may know you're a sinner. In another spot, it says, if there was a law given which could give life, there would have been one given. But here it says, the law was given so that we can have a knowledge of our sin. Because why? We know sin is transgression of the law. Verse 21, but now a righteousness of God has been revealed Apart from the law. Take our minds back to Romans chapter 1. About how that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. And there in that gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about that gospel. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Apart from us keeping the law. And then it says, the word law is used differently here. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, in the Old Testament. 
in the early books of the of the Old Testament, the books of Moses and, and all the prophets, they testified of the same gospel that we believe, the gospel that David believed, Abraham believed, Noah believed, Jacob, Isaac, all these Old Testament saints believed this gospel and it was preached in the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God through faith of Jesus Christ toward all and upon all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation, which means a satisfaction of law and justice. God set forth Christ on the cross imputed the sin of his people on him, poured out his wrath on Christ for the sins that were not his, but were the sin of the elect. And Christ satisfied law and justice when he hung on that cross as he became the sacrifice for sin. Through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness through the passing of the sins that had taken place before in the forbearance of God. For the display of his righteousness at this time, for him to be just and the justifier of the one having faith in Christ. Verse 27. Then where is boasting? Paul says, I just told you the gospel. How that sinners are saved. It's by Christ stepping in, taking their place, taking their sin, being their representative, having their sin put on him taking the wrath of God, satisfying law and justice for them completely until that sin is gone, dying, being buried, resurrected and ascended, sitting in the right hand of God for them. That's how sin is put away and, and how Christ reigns now because of that action. And he says in all of that, all that activity that has explained the personal work of Christ, he says, to the people at Rome that are believers. He says, what do you got to brag in? Where is boasting? He said, it is excluded. Through the law? Law of works? No. But through the law of faith. Therefore, verse 28, we conclude a man is, or a person, a human being, man, woman, boy, girl, is justified by faith without the works of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Or also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since it is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith, those are the Jews, and the uncircumcision, which is the Gentiles, through faith. And then here's the question. This is why I brought us to this text. Verse 31. Do we then make the law void through faith? Do, do we cancel out the law through faith? Do we make it worthless, no good, uh, not to amount to anything because salvation is through the means of faith to look to Christ for keeping the law rather than us keeping the law? Do we make the law void through faith? King James says, God forbid, and this version says, let it not be. But we establish the law. 
Now, that's kind of a, people read that and they say, how did that, that, what, how's that work? How do we, step? how do we not keep the law? He tells us don't keep the law for salvation, but look to Christ. But when we do look to Christ and don't keep the law, we establish the law. How does that work? Well, think back to this guy that I always pick on in Matthew 7 that approached God on Judgment Day and he said, But Lord, Lord, haven't I cast out demons in your name? I've preached in your name and I've done many wonderful works in your name. You know what? This guy was a law keeper, in other words. He was excited about working for God or who he thought was God. And Christ being the judge, he's telling this story in, in Matthew 7. He says, And I will profess unto them in that day, Depart from me, you who work iniquity. The word iniquity means lawlessness. Now, this guy in Matthew 7 that was bragging or boasting about his works was giving his reason why he thought he should enter the gates of heaven was what we would call uh, a legalist. This would want, be one that would take the law and use it for some type of acceptance before God. Now, we hear the other phrase, antinomian, against the law. So you've got legalism, antinomianism. Trying to get to heaven by keeping the law, antinomianism is being against the law. But in the context of Matthew 7, Christ calls the legalist an antinomian. He says, you legalist, trying to get to heaven by keeping the law, you're against the law. They're the worst kind of, of antinomian. They're the ones that they don't, under, they don't hear the law. They don't see in our first part of our message about who God is and what he requires. They don't see that the law, they don't hear the law say perfection. They don't hear it. So what do they do? They take their vain hands, their dead mind, and they get the law. And they're already guilty to begin with. They're already sinners approaching to get the law, to try to keep the law, and say, what are they implying? What they're saying is, Christ's law keeping is not enough. I think I'm going to compete with the one you love the most, Father. And as Isaiah says, filthy rags are righteousness. As Paul says, his righteousness he counted as dung, and blindly, not even knowing, a sincere step in keeping the law, that person is raising up their righteousness to the nose of God with filthy minstrel rags and dung and saying it's better than Christ's. That's what is going on. And they do that because they have no spiritual life. They have no they're spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind. They don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant of the gospel. They're dead, spiritually dead. And that's what spiritually dead people do all the time, automatically. It's always been that way. 
It's the peak and the height and the pinnacle of self-righteousness and false religion. So the one who is the legalist or thinks that he can keep the law is really the worst person who is actually against the law. They don't even know it. But that still doesn't answer our question, how do we establish the law? If we approach God by Christ's law keeping, how do we establish the law? Well, God gives us faith. He creates us a new creature. As the scripture says, he justifies us and sanctifies us. He declares us righteous and gives us the spirit. And that person walks by faith, lives by faith, walks in the spirit. And as I've already described in, in the message up to this point, they seek to obey God by doing everything he says, but it is for the motive of loving him, being thankful for what he's done for you. And it is never to be the motive of, I'm going to get something out of this. I'm going to gain favor. I'm going to gain salvation or maintain salvation. I'm going to impress God. Or I'm going to get up on a higher plane or a higher level by what I'm doing, by keeping some form of the law. It's never like that. We establish the law by recognizing that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, as it says in Romans 10.4. We approach God and we say, you're too holy for me to put my unholy hands on the law and try to impress you. I've already given up at my conversion and the Spirit's working in me and I'm growing and I'm seeing clearer and clearer and clearer that I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. I can't keep the law for any part of my righteousness. Therefore, my faith looks to Christ who kept the law, who actually established righteousness. And that's how we establish the law by saying, that's Christ's business to you, Father. That's part of the sacrifice. Does that mean that we hate the law? That proves we love the law. But you see, religion accuses us of hating the law. Because they don't know how to honor the law. They don't hear what the law says. It's that old stone of stumbling, rock of offense. They don't like Christ's way of salvation. Now, one more thing in closing. I've got enough notes for another 15 minutes, but I'm not going to keep it that long. But I got an email not too long ago talking about that we are saved from the power of of sin, not just the guilt of sin, but the power of sin. And I mean, there was not much contextual explanation and detail about exactly what that meant, but of course, we're saved from the guilt of sin, that's justification. And I think these, this idea was trying to take sanctification and equate it in the power section, keep those things together guilt and justification, power and sanctification. Well, you know, I read scripture and I see where Paul says, when I would seek to do good, evil was with me. And, and he talked about his efforts at trying to obey God. And, and at each step of the way, he just talked about his utter failure to obey God like he really wanted to. And he said, finally he said, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? 
and he like kind of craved to die and get away from this body of death so that he could be with God where he wouldn't <laughs> sin anymore. So it looks like sin still has some power in the life of the believer. Sanctification is not going to be what God is looking at, at judgment. He's not going to look and see just how sanctified are you? What were your efforts in sanctification? If they're, if they're on a certain plane of my standard, I'm going to let you in. No. That's that Galatianism again. That's legalism. We're going to be declared just in anything that we did in the body that had to do with good works can be accredited to the Spirit of God working in us. That's why it says that we cast our crowns at His feet. We just don't stack them up on our head and say, you didn't have very many, you dummy. Look at all the ones I got. You're going to be sitting in a different place. I'm going to be sitting close to the throne. You're going to be like, you know, where the scumbags are. And you may, you might be serving me because I did better than you. This is goofy. Yes. Really doesn't do much justice for human pride. You know, human pride is, is really the thing that in ourselves, we can't avoid that. That's, that's natural. I mean, that's why you have to live in the spirit. Right. Because by, na by nature, we're prideful. We, we want some people to know about it, but we want some something in us to say. Some recognition. Yeah. And that's there are warnings in Scripture about that. And, and um, part of the reason for the gathering of the church is to remind each other that, hey, we, we, can't, uh, we can't do that. And, and really, when that takes hold of a church... And some of these Lordship Salvation churches, you've been in some of them now. I mean, it's, it's, it's every week is a competition. Every week people are looking at each other, pointing fingers, and inspecting fruit. For sin shall not have dominion over you. This is the verse in this email I read recently about the power of sin. It said, God saved you so that, so that Sin won't have dominion over you. This means you should have the power to defeat sin. Well, what does the text say where it talks about dominion? It's, it's Romans 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Sin cannot have dominion over you because God has legally declared you to be righteous in Christ. It has nothing to do with your performance of having power of the things that you do to defeat sin. So having said all that, what more incentive to continue to come to Christ for everything? Righteousness, sanctification. For God made him to be for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Christ is all. Continue to come to Christ even after the initial coming to Christ.